Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why your eyes get puffy when you cry. You'll also learn about the benefits of being a generalist instead of a specialist from author David Epstein. Let's satisfy some curiosity. It's pretty easy for people to tell when you've just had a really good cry. You know what I'm talking about. Your eyes get red and puffy and your emotions are laid bare for the world to see. Well, it turns out that your eyes get puffy when you cry because your eye's drainage system just can't keep up, but only when you've cried enough. So let's talk tears. Your eyes produce three different types of tears, basal, reflex, and emotional tears. Basal tears keep your eyes lubricated and protect your cornea from dirt and debris. These tears are secreted constantly, and most people don't even notice they're always tearing up just a bit. Reflex tears contain additional antibodies to fight off bacteria, and your body pushes them out in pretty big quantities to protect you from stuff like smoke and dust and the horrific fumes that come from chopping onions. Emotional tears have a slightly different chemical composition with proteins and hormones that you don't find in other tears. Those ingredients might help bring your body back into balance after an emotional overload. All of these tears are produced by the lacrimal gland just above your eye. When the lacrimal gland produces just a few tears, they coat your eyes as you blink, then drain into your nose through the tiny holes in the corner of your eyelids. But when life calls for a full-on sob fest, your lacrimal drainage system can't keep up. Tears that usually evaporate or go back into your nose instead cascade out of your eyes. You know the snotty mess that comes with an ugly cry? Well, believe it or not, if you're crying hard enough, tears can actually come out of your nose. And that's also when the swelling starts. Tears are more watery and less salty than the fluid that fills your cells. And by osmosis, that water flows through a semi-permeable membrane into the tissue around your eyes to balance out the concentration of salt on either side. This causes your eyes to appear puffy, which is only aggravated when you rub them while you're crying. On top of this, the blood vessels in and around your eyes can dilate, partly because your tears are derived from your blood supply. I mean, they've got to come from somewhere, right? There's no surefire way to stop puffiness from crying, but a cold compress can reduce the swelling. And believe it or not, hemorrhoid creams can also do the trick, since they contain compounds to shrink blood vessels and reduce inflammation. Or, of course, go for the tried and tested method. Just blame it on allergies. You may have been taught that you should specialize at an early age, but there's a mountain of evidence piling up that suggests being a generalist is really the way to go. That's according to our guest for today and tomorrow, David Epstein, author of the new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And today, he's joining us to explain the incredible benefits of being a generalist who crosses domains. Here's David on his personal experience coming to this new understanding. I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated for a little while. Obviously, youth sports being an area that's heavily associated with early specialization to a crazy extent. And I decided, gosh, I should go look at the scientific literature and see what it says about the optimal development of athletes. So it was like that magical thing where you're like, let's see if the science says that people are doing what they actually should be doing. And when I looked at that, it turns out that all across the world, like the ubiquitous finding is that athletes who go on to become elite have what sports scientists call a sampling period where they they try a range of different sports. They gain these broad general skills that scaffold later specific skill learning. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. And I sort of said, well, gosh, that is exactly the opposite of both what I thought and what I see happening 
that was really contrary to my intuition. And that's sort of why I thought that it might be a good topic to take on, because if it was contrary to my intuition, hopefully it would be to other people's as well. Okay, so becoming good at lots of things will make you good at any one given thing. But resumes rely on showing that you've done the same thing for several years. So what's up with that? Here's David on generalists and jobs. So when LinkedIn recently did an analysis of a half million, you know, they have these great database for this stuff of a half million members and looked at the best predictors of who would go on to become an executive. Number one was that they went to a top five MBA program and they couldn't prove whether that was because of the school's influence or because of the just the selection of students. But the next one was the number of different job functions that someone had worked at across an industry. Each different job function saved someone about three years of experience in terms of propelling them toward the C-suite, as it were. And so I think even in reality, we're seeing that that advice like not play out in the people who are going the farthest, but it certainly makes the most sense, right? It seems like, like even when I was, I was living in a tent in the Arctic, studying Arctic plant physiology when I decided to be a writer. And, and that turned out to be my advantage at Sports Illustrated, where I had this science background where I was a totally ordinary scientist, but at a sports magazine, I was an absolutely extraordinary scientist. And that became my advantage. And yet when people who wanted to work there would call and ask me and say, should I major in journalism or English? I'd say my first instinct was to say journalism. My second was to say English. And only third to say, I studied geology and astronomy. I have no idea. And so I think it's it's a tidy thing we tell people. But one of the reasons I wanted to highlight the research of Abby Griffin in the book on these serial innovators, people who make creative contributions over and over, is that she sort of summarizes her research. She, she writes like a letter in one of her books to HR people and says, by the way, when you define your job too narrowly and look for this linear progression of work with no resume gaps and people who've worked in one discipline and they don't have hobbies, and they don't look like dabblers, you are screening out everything we know about the traits that these serial innovators have. So make your job descriptions more amorphous and, and not so tightly worded or you will screen these people out by accident. And so I think the reality of the best development is is kind of crashing into our intuition about what people should do and how they should form their resumes. And I should say there are, there are domains I highlight in the book where I think it's better to be a specialist. So I, I don't think we don't need specialists. I think we need specialists and generalists, but we're only telling people to be one of those. Um, but just to think about a couple domains, for example, when I looked at research on comic books, like what causes a comic book creator to do well as measure, the metric that was used was the value of, of their comic books on average and to be more likely to make a blockbuster. And the scientists who were studying this, this is good. This this I picked this study because it wouldn't suffer from survivor bias like a lot of business research because they could track the prices up and down um, of these comic books. And they thought it would be years of experience, resources of the publisher, number of previous comics made, stuff like that that would predict success. And instead, it turned out to be none of those. And the most important factor was the number of different genres that a creator had worked in um, across their career. And not only that, but if you had a, an individual who had worked in two genres, then a team of people who had worked in one genre each, but three people would be better. But after four genres, an individual who had worked in more than four genres was better than a team who by platoon put together that same experience. So something about an individual with broad experience could not be recreated by a team of specialists. So an individual must be able to integrate knowledge in certain ways that you can't always copy with a team. And there was a very similar finding in, in technological invention where the biggest breakthroughs were coming not from the deepest experts, but people who had spread their work across a large number of different 
technology classes as identified by the patent office um, over the course of their career. And what they often did was like take a technology from one area and bring it into another. And that was their breakthrough. And, and actually that's a newer phenomenon in the sense that those contributions have ramped up since about the 1990s. And, you know, the guess of the researcher whose, whose work I was talking about in that section of range is that as communication technology has made specialized information more rapidly and easily available, these opportunities for people to combine already existing knowledge in new ways just exploded. Um, and you don't need as many specialists. You still need them, but you don't need as many. So I would just see these analogs, whether it was looking in the arts or looking in technology that, that I found really interesting. We hope you found this research valuable, especially if you happen to work in recruiting or human resources. Tomorrow, you'll hear the second half of our interview with David Epstein, and he'll get into how you can become a generalist even if you've spent most of your life specializing. We'll also put a link in today's show notes for you to pick up his book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Before we recap what we learned today, we want to give a special shout out to some of our supporters for today's ad-free episode. Special thanks to Katrina Constantine, Steve Guy, Dan Paternitti, Bob Buckley, Hayden Fossey, Durant, and Angie for supporting our show. You can support our show by nominating Curiosity Daily to be a finalist in the 2019 Podcast Awards. Find a link in today's show notes or visit podcastawards.com to register. Then find Curiosity Daily in the drop-down menus for the categories of People's Choice, Education, and Science and Medicine. It's free to vote and will really help us out. And now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned there are three types of tears and emotional tears can mess up your face when they come out of your nose. And that a lot of elite athletes and other top performers do well because they're generalists, not just specialists. And if you're hiring, don't count out the generalist resumes that come across your desk, especially if that resume includes masters in jazz studies and science communication. I have no idea who you could be talking no, about. No, just saying. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 